Welcome to the True Crime Truckers Podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. is going to continue to be free and not only her but every other young woman in the Salt Lake Valley is going to is going to be threatened by that person or persons and it's happening today and it's going to happen in the future I swear to God every man in that prison at one time or another thinks about going wishes he wasn't there and wishes he could fly over those fences I've dreamed about flying over those fences I've dreamed about climbing over those fences and tunneling under those fences with every other man in there I've dreamed about being free August 16, 1975, Bundy was arrested by Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward in Granger. Hayward had observed Bundy cruising a residential area in the pre-dawn hours. Bundy fled the area at high speed after seeing the patrol car. The officer searched the car after he noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats. He found a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from a pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. Bundy explained that the ski mask was for skiing. He had found the handcuffs in a dumpster, and the rest were common household items. However, Detective Jerry Thompson remembered a similar suspect and car description from the November 1974 Durange kidnapping, which matched Bundy's name from Kleffler's December 1974 phone call. In a search of Bundy's apartment, police found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a checkmark by the Wildwood Inn and a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play in Bountiful where Deborah Kent had disappeared. The police did not have sufficient evidence to detain Bundy, and he was released on his own recognizance. Bundy later said that searchers missed a hidden collection of Polaroid photographs of his victims, which he destroyed after he was released. Salt Lake City Police placed Bundy on 24-hour surveillance, and Thompson flew to Seattle with two other detectives to interview Kleffler. She told them that the year prior to Bundy's move to Utah, she had discovered objects that she, quote, couldn't understand in her house and in Bundy's apartment. 
These items included crutches, a bag of plaster of Paris that he admitted stealing from a medical supply house, and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. Additional objects included surgical gloves, an oriental knife in a wooden case that he kept in his glove compartment, and a sack full of women's clothing. Bundy was perpetually in debt, and Kleffler suspected that he had stolen almost everything of significant value that he possessed. When she confronted him over a new TV and stereo, he warned her, quote, If you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck, unquote. She said Bundy became, quote, very upset whenever she considered cutting her hair, which was long and parted in the middle. She would sometimes awaken in the middle of the night to find him under the bed covers with a flashlight examining her body. He kept a lug wrench taped halfway up the handle in the trunk of her car, another Volkswagen Beetle, which he often borrowed, quote, for protection. The detectives confirmed that Bundy had not been with Kleffler on any of the nights during which the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished, nor any on the day Ott and Noslin were abducted. Shortly thereafter, Kleffler was interviewed by Seattle homicide detective Kathy McChesney and learned of the existence of Stephanie Brooks and her brief engagement to Bundy around the Christmas of 1973. In September, Bundy sold his Volkswagen Beetle to a Midvale teenager. Utah police impounded it, and FBI technicians dismantled and searched it. They found hairs matching samples attained from Carolyn Campbell's body. Later, they also identified hair strands, quote, microscopically indistinguishable from those of Melissa Smith and Carol DeRanche. FBI lab specialist Robert Neal concluded that the presence of hair strands in one car matching three different victims who had never met one another would be, quote, a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity, unquote. On October 2nd, detectives put Bundy into a lineup. Durant immediately identified him as, quote, Officer Roseland, and witnesses from Bountiful recognized him as the stranger at the high school auditorium. There was insignificant evidence to link him to Deborah Kent, whose body was never found, though a skeletal fragment found near the school was later identified as Kent's by DNA analysis. There was more than enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault in the Durange case. He was freed on $15,000 bail, paid by his parents, and spent most of his time between indictment and trial in Seattle living in Kleffler's house. Seattle police had insufficient evidence to charge him in the Pacific Northwest murders, but kept him under close surveillance. Kleffler wrote, quote, when Ted and I stepped out on the porch to go somewhere, so many unmarked police cars started up that it sounded like the beginning of the Indy 500, unquote. <laughs>
In November, the three principal Bundy investigators, Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado, met in Aspen, Colorado and exchanged information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from five states. While officials left the meeting convinced that Bundy was the murderer they sought, they agreed that more hard evidence would be needed before he could be charged with any of the murders. In February of 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Durange kidnapping. On the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell, Bundy waived his right to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. After a four-day bench trial and weekend of deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. In June, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. In October, he was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit, road maps, airline schedules, and a social security card, and spent several weeks in solitary confinement. Later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with Karen Campbell's murder. After a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January of 1977. On June 7, 1977, Bundy was transported 40 miles from the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. He had elected to serve as his own attorney and as such was excused by the judges from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles. During a recess, he asked to visit the courthouse's law library to research his case. While shielded from the guard's view, behind a bookcase, he opened a window and jumped to the ground from the second story, injuring his right ankle as he landed. Bundy jumped out of this second story window at the front of the Pitkin County Courthouse this morning. He was scheduled for a court appearance and apparently had been locked into the law library by sheriff's deputies while attorneys were arguing a motion to strike the death penalty. Witnesses say he left in a hurry, however nobody saw him open the window, and he escaped clean in an unknown direction. At both ends of town, the Sheriff's Department put up roadblocks and searched each vehicle leaving the town of Aspen. As of late this afternoon, Bundy was still missing, but a court clerk said they'd arrested nine people on warrants and confiscated 200 pounds of marijuana. All day long, County Sheriff Dick Keenest has been circling over the wooded hills in a helicopter looking for the suspected rapist killer, but with no success. Ted Bundy, a Washington state resident, was convicted last year of the kidnap assault of a young woman from Salt Lake City. He's also the prime suspect in a series of murders of young women in Washington state, as well as the suspect in a murder case here in Aspen. This is Ward Lucas reporting from Aspen. After shedding an outer layer of clothing, he walked through Aspen as roadblocks were being set up on its outskirts, then hiked southward onto Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. The following day, he left the cabin and continued south toward the town of Crested Butte, but became lost in the forest. For two days, he wandered aimlessly on the mountain, missing two trails that led downward to his intended destination. On June 10th, he broke into a cabin trailer on Maroon Lake, 10 miles south of Aspen, taking food and a ski parka but instead of continuing southward, he walked back north towards Aspen, eluding roadblocks and search parties along the way. Three days later, he stole a car at the edge of Aspen Golf Course. Cold, sleep-deprived, and in constant pain from his sprained ankle, 
he drove back into Aspen, where two police officers noticed his car weaving in and out of its lane and pulled him over. He had been a fugitive for six days. In the car were maps of the mountain area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Carolyn Campbell's body. As his own attorney, Bundy had rights of discovery, indicating that his escape was not a spontaneous act, but had been planned. Back in jail in Glenwood Springs, Bundy ignored the advice of friends and legal advisors to stay put. The case against him, already weak at best, was deteriorating steadily as pretrial motions consistently resolved in his favor and significant bits of evidence were ruled inadmissible. A more rational defendant might have realized that he stood a good chance of acquittal and that beating the murder charge in Colorado would probably have dissuaded other prosecutors. With as little as a year and a half to serve in the Durange conviction, had Ted persevered, he could have been a free man. Instead, Bundy assembled a new escape plan. He acquired a detailed floor plan of the jail and a hacksaw blade from other inmates and accumulated $500 in cash, smuggled in over a six-month period. He later said by visitors, Carol Ann Boone in particular. During the evenings, while other prisoners were showering, he sawed a hole about one square foot between the steel-reinforcing bars in his cell ceiling, having lost 35 pounds, was able to wriggle through it into the crawl space above. In the weeks that followed, he made a series of practice runs, exploring the space. Multiple reports from informants of movement within the ceiling during the night were not investigated. By late 1977, Bundy's impending trial had become a celebrity case in the small town of Aspen, and Bundy filed a motion for a change of venue to Denver. On December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge granted the request, but to Colorado Springs, where juries had historically been hostile to murder suspects. On the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, Bundy piled books and files in his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate him sleeping, and climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife, changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet, and walked out the front door to freedom. After stealing a car, Bundy drove eastward out of Glenwood Springs, but the car soon broke down in the mountains on Interstate 70. A passing motorist gave him a ride to Vail, 60 miles to the east. From there, he caught a bus to Denver where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. In Glenwood Springs, the jail skeleton crew did not discover the escape until noon on December 31st, more than 17 hours later. By then, Bundy was already in Chicago. Did you think it was possible to get out this way? We've eliminated what we felt at that time, any possible escape route from the roof. However, we were wrong. <laughs> What's Garfield County doing to find him? We're looking everywhere, uh, trains, buses, and this, the usual thing. I have no idea where he is. People should be very careful, should check on their neighbors, make sure their cars are secure. Uh, we're just looking. From Chicago, Bundy traveled by train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he was present in a local tavern on January 2nd. Five days later, he stole a car and drove to Atlanta, where he boarded a bus 
and arrived in Tallahassee, Florida on the morning of January 8th. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Trucker Podcast Group. You can also join Age of Radio's Facebook group at Addicted to Podcasting. This is a group dedicated to the show hosts and fans of Age of Radio shows. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash true crime truckers slash there you can browse the bazaar where you can purchase items from our wonderful sponsors as well as browse other shows on the age of radio syndicate also if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a podcast sticker go to www.patreon.com slash true crime truckers podcast you can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks, so until then, stay safe.